We're going to talk about the uh, fourth noble truth today, the Eightfold Path. But the uh, Eightfold Path has its context because it's a part of the four noble truths. So I just want to do a little uh, reminder, a little run-up of the first three noble truths. And then that gives the, um, again, the context for the eight practices in the Eightfold Path. So this is, uh, these quotes are from the first discourse. This is where the Buddha has just described the middle way, which is the Eightfold Path. Then he comes in and reinforces it and says, furthermore, bhikkhus, this is the dukkha arya satya. It's dukkha, maybe suffering. We can leave it as dukkha. Arya is noble and satya is truth. This is the dukkha, noble truth. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Associated, association with what is disliked is dukkha. Association from what is Disassociation from what is liked is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. That last uh, phrase is a whole other teaching about the five aggregates. In, in brief, uh, it's a really a deconstruction of what we call self into these five moving components to see that there's nothing static in what we're calling self. But that's uh, maybe another conversation. Then you come into the, the second paragraph. Furthermore, because this is the dukkha samudaya aryasacha, which means the arising. This is the, the noble truth of the arising of dukkha. This tanha leading to rebirth, connected with desire and enjoyment, finding delight here and there. That is to say, kama tanha, which is sense pleasure craving, bhava tanha, which is the craving of becoming, and vibhava tanha, which is the, the fear of becoming or the, uh, the wish not to become. Furthermore, because this is the dukkha naroda aryasacha, this is the cessation of dukkha. Naroda means since cessation. So the third noble truth is when dukkha ceases. It is the complete viraga, dispassion, naroda, cessation, abandoning, forsaking, emancipation, and freedom from that very tanha craving. And this is what we spent the last three days looking at. Then we have today's topic. Furthermore, because this is the dukkha niroda, so the cessation of dukkha, gemini patipada, uh, the way, le- the path leading to, gemini is uh, leading to, patipada is path, Aryasacha, noble truth. So that, that's a mouthful. The Dukkha Naroda, Gemini, Patipada, Aryasacha, um, which gets luckily translated into the path leading to the cessation of Dukkha, gets shortened even further to the Eightfold Path. So just this Arya, uh, Atangika Maga, and that means uh, Maga is path, and Atangika is eight or eightfold, so the noble eightfold path. That is to say, and then we have these eight um, phrases, samaditi, samasankapa, samapacha, samakamanta, sorry, 
Sama Ajiva, Sama Vayama, Sama Sati, and Sama Samadhi. So that's the Pali for describing these eight folds. And then we can actually begin to put our attention onto these eight folds and unpack them this morning. But they come out of, again, the context. This is the fourth noble truth. And so the eightfold path is in this stream of understanding that it's, du- that it's tanha that's causing dukkha. And therefore, these eight folds are meant to do what is said in the third paragraph, the complete uh, dispassion, cessation, abandoning, forsaking, emancipation, and freedom from that tanha. That's the context. That's the, uh, the path leading to that. So as we train in these eight folds, that's their purpose. An interesting sidebar <clears throat> to this is that um, mindfulness has just gone mainstream in uh, North America and Europe. But it's taught without necessarily a lot of context for what is mindfulness. Mindfulness is a tool that we all have. Um, everybody has mindfulness in them, but not everybody's developing it. So it's a very strong capacity of heart and mind. And so people are developing mindfulness and seeing that it's, um, it's a great quality of heart and mind, but it doesn't necessarily have context around it. So just like you might see yoga taught in a YMCA that really doesn't have any connection to what those physical postures, how they relate to a system of freedom, it becomes an exercise. Mindfulness without its context would have some benefit, but it has a stronger benefit when it's a part of this Four Noble Truth system, or at least that's some of the, uh, the belief we have here, that mindfulness is beneficial but it plays a specific role here. And that's why when we're guiding you in meditation, we are guiding mindfulness, but then we begin these investigations that uh, have been shown greatly reduce suffering, not just mindfulness by itself, but mindfulness with the intent of undermining and abandoning craving. So we come down to the second half of the page and we just drawing them out. Here are some um, English translations of these Pali words. An Eightfold Path can be broken into three sections, the Panya section, the Sila section, and the Samadhi section. So coming into what's often the first path factor, the first of the Eightfold Path, the first fold, Samaditi. And sama here gets translated as right or wise. And it's only considered right or wise in context of the Four Noble Truths. So that's what makes them wise or right, is that they have this context of the other Three Noble Truths. Ditti is uh, often translated as view or understanding. And so it's not, it might start out like an intellectual process. It might start out by developing opinions and knowledge. But again, it comes down into this um, second nature way of seeing things. And as you see things more clearly, you're in samaditi, but you may not even know it. So it's actually good to know that you're seeing things clearly um, because you can actually develop it. You cultivate it further. And we come into the second factor, samasankapa, 
And that's often translated as wise or right intention. In other places, it gets translated in several ways. And another translation is wise application. So once you have the view or understanding, how do you proceed? This is wise proceeding, the intentions we have, how we actually move forward. So again, once you have the map of the United States, you can pick the highway you want and drive across it however you want to go. So first you have the map and then you have the, the actions that come out of it. What's guiding those actions? How are those actions um, uh, arising? And that's a wise intention, wise application. That then leads into these next three, the sila portion of the Eightfold Path. We have sama bacha, which is wise speech, wise communication. Sama kamanta, which is wise action. Sama ajiva, which is wise livelihood. And those actually, those uh, wise action and wise livelihood actually work pretty well for those. I've seen uh, sama ajiva be translated as um, wise vitality. How are you cultivating your vitality? How are you in community? So how are you uh, keeping yourself alive? Um, we can unpack that a little bit more um, on the other page. And then the next three of the Eightfold Path um, are the development of heart and mind. Samavayama, which is translated as wise effort. Samasati, wise mindfulness. And samasamadhi, wise concentration or wise unification of heart and mind. So again, the, uh, the intent of these eight developments, these eight practices, are to abandon craving. And <clears throat> a craving can be abandoned directly by recognizing that it's not worthwhile and doing what you can to let go of it right then and there. A deeper um, liberation comes when you take out the, uh, the avijja, the ignorance, the not seeing things clearly. When you take that out, craving is completely abandoned because uh, it has nowhere to thrive. <clears throat> so you could say that the, uh, the intent of the Eightfold Path is to first do some harm reduction about our habits and patterns and bring ourselves into a peaceful relationship with the life we have. And then a deeper wisdom training that takes out our ignorance or not seeing things clearly. And then that's what uh, ends up destroying tanha. So we don't even have to manage it at that point. It's actually been eradicated from our system. Before we turn to the other page, are there any questions coming up for you just so far about this? So the question is about um, the... I thought the, was concentration. Yes, so <clears throat> the uh, question is about the word samadhi, and that's a heading for 
wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, yet it's also wise concentration. And at the time of the Buddha, um, the Buddha introduced mindfulness and made it um, central to the waking up process. But it probably wasn't central to other traditions. And so when people practiced meditation, mostly at the time they were developing samadhi, when he went and worked with two of his teachers before he became enlightened, they were two samadhi masters. And so in terms of the word, using the word samadhi, that was probably seen as um, the cultural word for uh, meditation and powerful meditation. So this is, you really want to perfect this art of meditation, you would be practicing samadhi. And then it has a specific um, connotation that we d- were developing samadhi. So it, it might have several uses um, that were more common at the time of the Buddha. We know Buddhism and we know that, we probably know the word mindfulness more than we know the word concentration. And concentration is seen to be a support of mindfulness. So we would like to go back in time and call this section the development of mindfulness because we already know that and love that. But at the time, um, it hadn't been established yet that uh, meditation could be mindfulness. So the common word at the time was uh, samadhi. And it's one of the things that as lay people, um, the tradition that we've gotten from Thailand and Burma um, is only... The, there's a development that happened in the last hundred years where um, ordinary people were given intensive trainings in um, mindfulness. Before that, it was seen that mindfulness was more profound. The development of mindfulness for liberation was more profound when it was combined with really deep states of concentration. But ordinary people, lay people, didn't have the time to spend months in the monastery to do that. So the development of samadhi and the development of mindfulness um, really go hand in hand. That's what allows us to see deeply, is to have strong samadhi. So that's why this this, um, grouping has this title of samadhi. There's actually, um, I've just learned something which was a, an eye-opener. So I can share this with you all. And this may be the one thing you would know better than most anybody, because most people don't know this, is that this breakdown of sila, samadhi, and panya as a way of grouping the Eightfold Path, um, you can't find the Buddha actually saying that. And it, only is, it seems to only appear once in the entire Pali Canon. And I told you about the that husband-wife team where the wife became fully enlightened and the husband was a non-returner. She says at one point, um, and it may even be him who's asking her this question, he said, what are the three higher trainings and are they synonymous with the Eightfold Path? And she says, yes, actually, when you, the higher training of wisdom, Panya, can be seen as uh, Samaditi, and Sama Sankapa, it can be seen as 
wise view and wise intention, you can group uh, this development of sila under uh, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And you can group um, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise samadhi under this higher training of samadhi. So there's only one citation from her. Often when she said things um, that made it into the canon, the Buddha said, I would have said it that same way, but he actually didn't say that. But it's become very common to assume like, oh, sure, this must be all throughout the entire Pali canon because it's such a good grouping, but it only actually appears once to do that. But actually, it is a really useful grouping. So, <laughs> But um, I went looking for this just uh, like two months ago, trying to really... Where was it said? I couldn't find it, and I had to dig around, and finally Sally, who's teaching next door, she'd just done the same thing, and she found this one quote. So that's your little nugget for today. You now know something, where it comes from, the citation. If anybody ever asks, you may never find anybody who'll ever ask you that, but (laughs) if they did, it's like, oh, yeah, I know this one, I know this one. Dhammadina. I think it's from Dhammadina, one of the nuns at the time of the Buddha. Any other questions about this? Yeah. Um, we might use the microphone again for the, the folks who... It's also helpful for the recording. Mm, nice socks. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Them bones. <laughs> they should hand those out next door to doing the 30 parts of the body. We should have... Um. I think I missed the distinction between, uh, you said like something about the purpose of the Eightfold Path at first being harm reduction and then uprooting ignorance. Um, And you were saying that in the harm reduction area, perhaps seeing that something is not worth your energy. Um, But if in seeing that there's insight into anicca, is that not uprooting ignorance? It is. It is. And so um, one part of the practice helps our, um, our habits and patterns that are not helpful go dormant. And so we've all been able to do that much on this retreat to some degree is that the mind can become less agitated. So... That's what I'm calling harm reduction. Just the mind has habits and patterns, and rather than just keep increasing, we learn to calm it down, come into mindfulness, and then begin seeing the arising and passing, and even that begins to convince us, boy, it really isn't worth it. There actually is a new type of happiness and well-being that can come. And so, yeah, next time that that um, craving comes up, I'll have more perspective why it's not useful. So that's helping us kind of calm down. <clears throat> but if we if we still have deeper views and orientations, the craving will come up. And so we haven't really eradicated it. We're making it harder for it to thrive. But we have to do it. Um, we have to become much more deeply experienced in the arising and passing nature of experience, and that begins to really flush it out of our system. So it gives it no no home nothing for the craving to really thrive upon. So in that, one part is just to kind of get ourselves temporarily free and have that deepen, but in final freedom, 
it uh, it can't just be from calming ourselves down. We actually do have to change our paradigm, and that will end up flushing out uh, the ability to have craving arise at all when we're well established in the new paradigm. And that's really where it's not until um, wisdom is fully established, and so we're seeing the world through the Four Noble Truths, um, that uh, we're completely free. And I mentioned that last night. <clears throat> um, if someone said I had to put on these goggles and they just all I would see is the Four Noble Truths, so I'm like, I don't know if I want that. Like this, everything's Four Noble Truths. Everything's arising and passing. It's not necessarily that. As the Four Noble Truths settle in, the world actually looks better and more clear. It's like putting on glasses. And so when I was younger, it would have been a more forced interpretation. But as I've kind of deepened my understanding, the uh, I do see the world more and more through the Four Noble Truths. But it's not, it's not a limited view. It's actually quite a broad view. And so one of the things that comes out of the Four Noble Truths, for example, is um, the Buddha stated that hate has never ceased hate. Only non-hate has ever ceased hate. That's a law. That's within these Four Noble Truths that uh, kindness is what uproots hate. And I see that now. And my mind might ha still have some latent urges that, oh, if I really get angry here, I'm going to feel more powerful and we need more anger. And I might feel that starting to brew a little bit. And I'm like, no, that doesn't actually work. So that's actually, without even thinking about it, I'm so familiar with knowing the limitations and the destruction that comes from hate that I talk myself out of it. That's living with the Four Noble Truths very available for your internal guidance. So that's what the, uh, the development of this wisdom quality is. When that is more established, it's harder for me to cause trouble for myself and others. Anything else about this sort of broad view of the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Fourth Noble Truth, its context, and just looking at it for the first time in the course like this? Okay. So in turning over the page, we have these, we have the Eightfold Path, and you can begin understanding it, you can begin practicing it um, in the way that uh, Theravadan Buddhism was taught and passed down through the, the many centuries. It has these lists, and if you actually look closely at the lists, they open up into other lists, and they open up another list. And you have to think that at the time, um, it was an oral tradition. And so it's just very helpful to be able to break things down into lists because you can memorize the lists and then you can begin to unpack what's in any one list. And it's actually kind of helpful to have that other unpacking of a list be another list. But anyways, one of the, one of the things people notice a lot about this particular spiritual tradition is that it's just dripping with lists. <laughs> But it's helpful. And so if we turn into the Eightfold Path in detail, when we come into 
uh, wise view. Wise view is the Four Noble Truths. And so each of the really deepening with any one of the truths and then deepening with all four of them is the deepening of wise view. And there are all these beautiful little nuances that come out of it like that. I just said that um, when the Buddha says, hate has never ended hate, only non-hate can end hate, or only kindness can end hate. That's a nuance that comes out of the Four Noble Truths. So that's what wise view is. Wise view is the Four Noble Truths. It's a bit of a, um, a tautology in that you have the Four Noble Truths and they contain wise view. And wise view is the Four Noble Truths, which contains wise view, which is the Four Noble Truths. It's, it kind of like loops on itself. And deepening your understanding of the first three truths, also deepening your understanding of this eightfold path is deepening your understanding of wise view. So the Eightfold Path is one of the Four Noble Truths. So when you start to understand how the path works, all the little pieces, how they work and how they work together, that understanding that, that when you have any epiphanies around the Eightfold Path, you're deepening this factor of wise view. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Was that not clear? So that's... Um, there's a there's a sutta that I couldn't find this morning, but it's not not that hard to find. If I'd had another twenty minutes, I probably could have found it. But there's that one where they he gives the eightfold path many times, but when he really goes into detail, then you get start to getting what's on this page here. So the wise view is defined as um, the view from within the four noble truths, seeing seeing the world, understanding the world in terms of the four noble truths. Wise view, the Four Noble Truths, is what makes the rest of these have context. So wise view is important. When you're doing any of these other path factors, they can be powerful in and of themselves, but they become much more powerful towards your own liberation when they're done with understanding. So when we come into the next path factor, for example, wise intention, the detail on that is renunciation, harmlessness, and non-cruelty. Those particular words are more accurate with the Pali, but often people like to use uh, renunciation, kindness, and compassion. They're just a little easier to hold on to. Um, But if you run into Pali scholars, they get a little uh, teachy (laughs) at that point, so you can you can get a sense of that. It's much more useful in daily life to think about the intention of renunciation, of um, kindness, and of compassion. So what does that mean? So we have wise view, we have right, we have right understanding. And if it, were, if it were perfectly established, then everything that came out of that would be fine because you would be fully enlightened but because we're not quite fully enlightened, we're still on the path. We have our best understanding, but then these intentions start to happen. Oh, it's good, I have a scratch, I'm gonna itch it. I'm gonna go for a sitting meditation. Now it's time to go for lunch. So these actions start to come out. But as you go from the view towards the action, you have to pass through intention. 
you don't just go from right from view to action. Often there's a, a precursor to action. The precursor for action are the intentions that are coming up. They can be very fast, so you might be sitting still, feel an itch and your arm is already up and you don't even know you had an intention really to scratch. But when you get intimate with yourself, there is. You're sitting there, an itch comes, and right away a desire, an impulse comes and you go to scratch. So what is that? What is that motion? Are you being kind to yourself? Are you irritated because there's a bug there? Could you let it go? Could you sit with it? Or did something take over right away? So you have wise view, and then that view become, uh, is what guides us towards our actions. And that's when we come into this path factor, wise intention. The first one of wise renunciation, yeah. Can I go back to wise view? Yeah, let's use the microphone. Sorry. That's okay. I, I really want you all to understand this, so questions are great. I thought wise view included um, uh, uh, dependent uh, origination um, yeah. karma. I thought yeah. th- that included that. In detail, when the when you get to know the Four Noble Truths and it begins to, when you really get into it, these these other teachings sit within the Four Noble Truths. And so karma is not outside of the Four Noble Truths. It's within the Four Noble Truths. Dependent origination is within the Four Noble Truths. We, you don't want to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could, just to, just to show you that that's the case. I tried using that one example where Okay, we have the Four Noble Truths, but over here, why? where does love come into the Four Noble Truths, for example? And it's like, oh, love is within the Four Noble Truths. And so is karma. It's within the Four Noble Truths. The three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, it's within the Four Noble Truths. They're arising. When you see it really clearly, when you go into the first three Noble Truths, mm-hmm. you begin to see, when you see dukkha really clearly, when you see... Um, tanha really clearly, when you see yourself free of them, you start uncovering these other powerful patterns. Mm-hmm. And as you look into them, these other teachings begin to be clarifying. Okay. As you begin to really unpack and explore the realm of the Four Noble Truths, all the other teachings um, are found. And as as you unhook from tan- Tanha, um, you change your karma also? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, uh, so we become ex- incredibly uh, intimate with what is dukkha. Mm-hmm. We become incredibly intimate with all of the powerful and subtle aspects of tanha. Mm-hmm. We become incredibly intimate with freedom, moments of freedom or full freedom of tanha. Mm-hmm. So we're going to become incredibly intimate with each of the, of the, the path. Mm-hmm. And as you become incredibly intimate with a path, and all this detail starts to come out um, that we might not have seen clearly before. Mm-hmm. And so that's really a, um, a whole nother, we're in a fourth noble truth that can, you can spend a lifetime and not find the end of it. It just keeps expanding, becoming more refined and more refined and more refined. There is a, a discourse, I think it's entitled The Elephant's Footprint. 
and Sariputta is um, the chief, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha. And uh, he he's walking with some monastics, and uh, he comes across an elephant's footprint in the forest. And he says, "Do you see that elephant's footprint?" And like, "Yes, we do see the elephant's footprint." And he said. <clears throat> is there another animal that has a larger footprint than the elephant? And they say, oh no, the elephant is king of the animals. It has the biggest footprint. And he says, so too, the Four Noble Truths has the biggest footprint of the Buddha's teachings and all the other animals' footprints would fit within it. So an interesting uh, analogy from 2,500 years ago. When you have, like the, the United States contains all the states the borders of all the other states are within the United States. All the towns and cities and roads, mountains and streams and lakes are within the border of the United States. Um, so too, when you have the border of the Four Noble Truths, there's uh, all this detail within them. And that becomes a, a, a great conversation. Well, how does this teaching fit in? How does this teaching fit in? And it's one of the things, if, you're, if you have a... Um, a map of the United States, and then you find yourself in Wisconsin. It's like, where does this fit in? It's like, okay, you're right here. See, that's the big view, but you're right here. It's like all these lakes and and free cheese. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, you're in Wisconsin. That's what they do there. Sorry, not the free cheese, but it's like, oh, it's very dry and deserty here, and there are these beautiful red rock formations. Well, you might be in Arizona, might be in New Mexico. It's like, oh, the, all these waves. It's great. People who hooping, where's this? Probably California. <laughs> so <clears throat> when you get into detail of it, all these things begin to come out. And I think it's a great, um, a, a great development of your understanding is where you actually begin to see how all these teachings start snapping into like puzzle pieces. They all snap into place. And it's also a deepening of the Four Noble Truths when you start to see the grand architecture and the grand dynamic nature of the liberating process. When I first did this, it was all scattered and I didn't see how it all worked together. And I was like, it's too confusing, but I like this little piece. I like it when I'm with my breath. I was like, good, you're right on the map. It's like, oh, I'm with my breath, but now I'm watching, my mind really is obsessed with this one thing. Oh, that's also on the map. Oh, I let go of that. Oh, that's, you're right on the map. Like, oh, really? How are all these things on this map? And now that you, over time, you develop this really good understanding so that if you, at, uh, probably if you were dropped anywhere in the United States, you could look around a little bit and have a guess where you might be, unless you're in a mall. <laughs> then you know you're in the United States, but you could be anywhere. Um, so. <laughs> so when Nikki uh, originally talked about um, uh, Buddha's awakening, she said there were three things. It was um, past lives, he saw his past lives. Yeah. He saw um, uh, the original dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths. That that all fits in the Four Noble Truths then. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, that, that's one of the reasons why um, I gave you this one sheet that has two sides. So that if you look at um, what is dukkha, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, On the night of his awakening, he saw that he had um, 100,000 lives. He scanned and saw 
this life I looked like this and I spoke like that and these were my kinsmen and this was my job and my house is like this. It's like, wow, that birth was not fully satisfying. It just produced more life, but it led to aging and dying. So that birth was dukkha. That birth didn't land me anywhere. Oh, look, that life, I was a king. Oh, great life, lots of pleasure. Whoops, it didn't land me anywhere permanent. Oh, no matter where I took birth, I just kept going. So there was no refuge. Birth does not produce a refuge, which is an important insight because a lot of us are hoping for a birth somewhere, either a year from now, a week from now, some other life that will be worth taking birth in. It's one of the reasons that they can sell tabloid magazines. It's like, teeth that white? That's what I want. <laughs> look how slim they are. Oh my God, they never gain any weight. That's what I want. Oh, look at the cars they drive. I want to be born there. If only my life were more like that. That's yearning for birth. But right there in the first noble truth, birth is dukkha. Birth is not satisfying. You can't find satisfaction by taking birth. And so I'm glad you asked that question because you can, you can start to see, oh, right, the Four Noble Truths, when I really understand them and I deepen my understanding of them, they start to contain more and more, which is why I'm, I'm 25 years into this. Um, and it's now just about everything I see snaps in. And there are weirder things out there that I don't know how they relate to the Four Noble Truths. And I spend time with them and it's like, oh, Actually, this does snap in. I see where this fits in the Four Noble Truths. Oh, interesting. So it's it keeps expanding. And that's really one of the ways of tracking the awakening process is because when you're an Arahant, finally it just takes it all. And no matter what you do at that point, it's all Four Noble Truths. And up until that point, there are things maybe that feel left out or you're not sure about. Um, so it's the big view. It was um, just a prop. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to take you too far afield, but um, I'm confused about karma. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like it implies some sort of um, trajectory or master plan. Um, but then it, everything else about the Four Noble Truths points to that not really matter, mattering any kind of trajectory or master plan. Hmm. So I, I don't understand the need for karma unless it's just a way of communicating to people the ideas. Like saying that he saw his 100,000 lives, I can just interpret that as he looked around him and saw life mm -hmm. and that he was life and he was part of it and it was all one thing. Um, he could see himself in a tree. He could see himself in a snail. He could see himself in a farmer because hmm. it's all him. Hmm. Um, so that the the reincarnation karma lives thing doesn't work for me. Yeah, it is. It doesn't work for a lot of people in our culture. It's 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 a really odd thing if you haven't grown up familiar with it. And some people have grown up in this culture and have an intuition around that. Um, already, but for many people, it's um, you don't have an intuition around it. It seems um, like an unnecessary 
complication. It seems like it's really just a belief system that isn't based in a reality. And a few things to say about this. Um, first thing to say, because you have both asked about karma, is that karma, besides being, besides wise view being um, the Four Noble Truths, right under the Four Noble Truths is an understanding of karma and the workings of karma as part of the understanding, as part of wise view, is to start to contend with karma. Just like these teachings, they have a here and now application. They have a this life application and you can become deeply free without really having to contend with multiple lives. And then the same with karma. Um, understanding karma that's understandable from our cultural context. And then sometimes, definitely when you go into the traditional teachings, when you start seeing karma, it does play out over time. It does play out over multiple lives. It is what generates multiple lives, is this playing out of karma. So some people have actually experienced this for themselves. And then from the outside, we just can't know. I can't know your experience. And so I just have to take your word for it. That's how you see things. You have past lives and you've experienced that. But you can see karma and the importance of karma in one life. So you are here now because of past choices. And the choices you make now have a big impact over what happens next. That's cause and effect. So karma is in, the, is in this realm that things are not spurious. Things don't happen for no reason. Things happen, everything in the universe, except Nibbana, is in a flow of cause and effect, cause and effect. As Western science and rational view, we don't think that gods are making it rain. Oh, rain, that's cause and effect. That's just the play of cause and effect. Karma is cause and effect, but it's in the realm of ethics and morality. So bad actions have bad results. My um, One of my sister's kids, um, fell into a, like a, a bunch of really bad things happened to her over the course of a couple of years and she really kind of bottomed out. Um, and she's picked herself up again. And we all really are happy that she's picked herself up again, but there is some heavy karma from that time. And of course we want to forgive her, but she hasn't totally got her ship straight yet. And so we still have this little sense like, I just don't know if we can trust her. We want to, but if she, we've done that so many times, she may not be totally worthy of our respect, not respect for sure, but not trust. She has to earn that trust back. And so she's paying off. And so it means that wherever she goes, people still have this feeling about her because there was about five years where she was really um, stealing from people and lying, and there was a lot of stuff going on, uh, drug addiction. So we've loved her all the way through, but there just is karma. And she can do something to correct that karmic flow. But it's not just a matter of like, let's just pretend it never happened, let's let it go, and therefore there's no consequence. You can't, you can't just undo the consequences. 
Um, if I screamed at you all, said I was sorry, and then we went on, there would be karma from that. You'd be like, okay, he was interesting, weird on Saturday. And then it took a while to trust him again. It's like, oh, it was just one event. I lost my temper. Let's pretend like it didn't happen. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to move on. But there's something about that. There is cause and effect, and you can't deny it. So you have to like, okay, that's what I'm dealing with now. I'm dealing with cause and effect. I'm also dealing, reaping the beautiful parts. When I have been kind to people and generous, people remember me years after. Some of these kids that I took uh, up into Canada canoeing, they might write me 20 years later and say, I've been searching for your address for years. And I want to tell you, that time when you talked to me and we lit the fire and you gave me some encouragement about life, you have no idea the ripple effect that caused. And now I am who I am. And I really... It's like, wow, who knew there'd be karma produced at that time to have that? And I had an intuition because it happened to me, but I didn't know the karmic results of being really generous to somebody at some point. In our culture, many of us can start to like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that understanding of karma, that there is cause and effect. And we are downstream of many previous causes and effects and some of these things take time to ripen. Some of these things, like getting a letter from a, a student I had a long time ago. Something done a long time ago is now ripening. So I can say, oh, beautiful karma is ripening. And now here's this wonderful letter. Mm-hmm. Or other things. And so that's really the tracking. And one of the things that, again, we're on the topic of right view. This is classically within right view to even have this conversation. So we're really talking about the Eightfold Path. We're talking about right view when we talk about karma. I'm putting you on the map right in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, you've asked about Wisconsin, so you're getting, you asked about karma. We're right on right view. Um, one of the things, one of the important teachings of karma that I think we all get culturally is that there's no deity that I should be praying to so I'll have a happier future. Um, if there are active Christians in here, I bow to you. Um, please carry on <laughs> with your deity. But as far as like, there's no rain God that many of us believe in that I can pray to to help end this drought. That's not one of our strategies. We believe in cause and effect. We don't believe in things happening and being controlled by other forces. So I can't be mean to you and then ask the gods to take care of it and expect somehow you're going to not forget that. We go much more into like, what were the actual events? What got triggered? And now what would we do? And so the use of karma at the time, um, there were a lot of people who were praying to deities, mm-hmm. de- uh, 10,000, 10 trillion deities in India trying to manage their happiness and well-being. And the Buddha says, it actually is cause and effect. You don't have to do purification rituals. You have to look at your behavior and see people are angry with you now because you were cruel with them yesterday. There's no God that will intervene on that. You have to stop being cruel. And over time, people will treat you differently. And it will take a while for that karma to play itself out. If that's at all, like, okay, I can work with karma that way. You're working with karma very 
deeply. You're working with saying like, okay, it's cause and effect. And I can start to trace a lot of the causes and effects. And the life I have now is grown out of causes and effects and choices that were made. Um, so for me, um, karma is what makes Buddhism the most like other religions in terms of it being, um, guidelines for behavior (laughs) with some kinds of consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And that you could live a happy life without approaching any of this stuff if you just believed in karma. Because you would then be a positive energy force in the world who didn't want to hurt people, didn't want to hurt things, wanted to do good. Um, And that good would come back to you. And so you could... I sort of see it as a way to bring um, peace to a community, happiness to a society, without really going deep into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? No? Well, it, it does, but I'm, I see my mind interpreting what you've said in a couple of different ways. So what you're describing sounds like it could be a belief system used to help establish some order. Mm-hmm. But in that, it's like, well, it's a belief that's useful, but maybe intoned in that is like, well, it's not accurate, but if we all believed it, mm-hmm. then, oh, I'm not going to hurt you because, boy, I don't want bad karma. There are a lot of people using karma in that teaching. There are a lot of people using, it's a very, like, sort of first grade. Yeah. And... I did that once to my niece. I came back from Burma and she was already like had a proclivity to lying and cheating. So we played these board games and I would see her cheating. I would see her lying. And then I tried to explain, oh, you don't want to do that because the outcome and the mistrust. And she's like, whatever. And then I said, I was told once a long time ago that if you lie, your tongue turns black and falls out of your mouth. And that grabbed her attention. She was about six. She was like, oh. Really? And I was like, oh my God, I totally just lied. <laughs> That's not good. But I can see, like, the, the truth, there is a truth, there is cause and effect, but it's possible that not everybody has access to that level of understanding. And so then karma does kind of get a little more shallow. And it's just like, you want to give somebody something because you'll, some, you'll get more later. Uh, and it might just start the ball rolling. And maybe that is a kind of a, and people, mis- people misuse deep teachings all the time for whatever they want. And maybe it's beneficial, maybe it's not. But there is, there is something deeper, there's something true about cause and effect and about the moral outcome of cause and effect. And that if you're cheating over here and nobody sees it, you still carry the kind of the, the ugh of the fact that you were cheating over here. And nobody knows about it, but there's still an impact. And so that is tangible karma. But I'm sure that many people, it sort of bubbles up and they're not doing that level of investigation. And so it does turn more into 
a belief system and then people are coaching each other like, oh, that's bad karma. Don't, don't kick that dog because you'll be kicked sometime in the future. And they're like, okay, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be kicked, so I'm not going to kick. It's like, well, you're actually playing out anger and if people are seeing that, the dog's seeing it, and you're increasing your own capacity for anger. So down the road, you're going to feel more of that. You're not, you're not cultivating something good. But not a lot of people are investigating on that level. And so you might at some point, somebody surely would say, kick that dog once, you'll be kicked five times later. Oh, if that were the case, I'm not going to kick the dog. And that's a great reduction mm-hmm. of uh, karma to something that's very simplistic. That said, still within the view here, that's not our cultural belief. I know people, Westerners who have trained very deeply, and definitely Asians that don't have a problem with it, who have past life recall, and then they've been able to do karma study, and they've been able to see this mango I had is incredibly sweet. This one monk that I practiced with, he told me about this. So why is this mango more sweet than anything I've ever had before? This is an outstanding mango seems like an incredible boon that I received this mango. And he did a karma study of it, and he saw that he had given a mango to somebody in a previous life with a lot of devotion. So he was completely fine with the fact that he gave a mango, he got a mango. But it wasn't even just one-to-one. He saw that that gift was so pure, the intention of it, that many, many beautiful things happened in the future because of it. That's very classical karma, that's like maybe Asian faith in karma, but it's not just a belief system. He was able to do practices that for him convinced him that there really was this multiple life karmic capacity, that beautiful deeds have many, many beautiful outcomes that can span multiple lives and harmful deeds had many, many outcomes that could span multiple lives. For the rest of us, we just don't know because we're not having that experience. So I really do want to give Nikki a chance to talk on this because I know she's also explored this topic a lot. And it's great. We're, we're not off topic. We are square on. We started with right view. We were just about to go to right intention and we stopped on right view. And it's important because this really does set up the other path factors. Yeah. Oh. So, a um, couple of things on that. Let's see. Um, and just so you know, for your body and bladders, we'll take a break shortly. Yeah. So, um, one is actually a thought about. Um, I'll, I'll just talk about rebirth for a moment because I think that that's kind. Of, that might be a sticky point. That when we talk about karma, and and I like how Temple really spoke about. Can you hear me? Okay, I feel like I'm maybe talking too it's soft also this just morning. It's a tiny bit hot. Feels like it's a little gainy. Is it gainy? Maybe not. One two three. One two three. I'll That's continue good. speaking. You tell yeah. me how it is. That's good. Okay, great. So. Um, Might clip it to your shirt because the collar keeps oh, going, going sliding out. Way out. Let's. This will be way up though. Let's see if this is going to be too tight. See, how's that? Okay, let's try that. Better? Louder? Okay, yeah. give that a try. So I really appreciate how Temple uh, really talked about 
the law of karma as cause and effect. Because especially for, for our Western mind, if, if there is some, uh, if there is not already a cultural relationship with rebirth, then it just, we, we lose the baby with the bathwater because the, 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 the law of cause and effect is a really powerful one and we can see it in our life. Um, uh, we can clearly see it and, and also as Temple was saying, it was a revolutionary teaching when the Buddha taught it. It was revolutionary to think that really was cause and effect and the deities didn't have to do it was not gods that you pray to. So it's really revolutionary and, and our, with our scientific Western mind, we almost take that for granted the cause and effect. So really emphasizing why, why cause and effect is so important. And also, as we work with cause and effect more, and, and, and I've contemplated that in my own practice, um, it, it becomes more crisp. It really becomes more crisp. You, you see how the actions that you do, if you, if you stay up late and then you're completely wasted, the next day you're not, you're not feeling well, or if you overeat, you can just see the cause and effect in small, insignificant ways, which also builds into more significant ways, both for you and other people around you. So appreciating it that way. So also what I wanted to bring in about... Um, about rebirth, so um, it was it was quite a shock for me when I started to practice as a scientist, when when I started to come to Spirit Rock and hear about rebirth, and like, are you kidding? No way. I mean, uh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll just like I'll I'll do these other practices; they work for me. But that I don't think so. Th- no, thank you. Um, and um, and I started to get more and more curious about it. As um, as I continue to practice, and um, and I heard about the um, there there is a, a Western scientist called Ian Stevenson. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. So um, he he's passed away now, and his work is continuing. But he um, was, I believe, a medical doctor, um, and I um, I, um, I mean it's all um, so so he's rich, basically he's done. Uh, lots of research on on rebirth. He became very curious about it, and he he um, he was he was a man with really good credentials, with really good critical scientific credentials. So what he did was he started to, uh, and, and he's published thousands of case studies, thousands of case studies, and they're compendiums of his books, and they're um, really interesting. Um, so what he started to look at was um, reports of young children um, around the world, um, because the, as, as he looked at it more and more, it seemed like um, if there were memories of past lives, they would be they would um, uh, go away by age six or so. But but young children who start to get verbal sometimes talked about past lives, and it happened more in India than in the West, even though it also happened in the West too. But, but I, uh, for me, that meant when, when, for example, kids in India perhaps talked about past lives, parents listened to them, whereas in the West we'd say, oh, well, yeah, whatever. You know, like, oh, you're, you just had a dream last night, sweetie, or something like that. So, see, so he would um, get reports of, of cases like this. So he had connections and, and, and would, um, he would get ca- reports of this. And then he would visit the child and the family um, and there are many cases where he's recorded what exactly the child uh, remembered. For example, 
there, there was this case, the child remembered being born in another village, etc. And the child had never been to that village because it was just a bit... And, um, so they actually, they went to that village and the child walks around and says, that was my house, this is, this is where I put some money. And so, so there were lots of, lots of accounts of this type that he recorded. But even more interestingly so, there are accounts of, um, of, of um, people who are born with, uh, or children who are born with, with um, either physical defects or really significant birthmarks um, on their bodies. And again, there are photographs of these available. And then they remembered the way they died uh, in accidents had to do with those birthmarks. And again, he's gone back and documented those. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, and um, um, uh, uh, who is it? I think it's Carl Sagan. I'm trying to remember um, who's, who's basically a, a, a famous debunker. There's a famous debunker of, of you know, uh, things that don't quite fit in the realm of science. And there is one debunker who's, who's uh, I think it is Carl Sagan, and I have the quote, um, there are three things that are worth investigating in, in things that do not fit within um, uh, the scientific framework. And he's named, uh, this debunker has named re- rebirth as one of them. Um, that it's, there's something there, because when you really start looking at it, you start to doubt um, maybe there's something there, maybe not, who knows. So the way I like to hold it in my own practice and study is, don't know mind. I cannot be sure there is rebirth. I cannot be sure of that. And yet I cannot be sure there isn't because there is some evidence um, that as a scientist I can see from, from respected sources that I cannot deny so I like to have a don't-know mind. I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe. And it's a more free experience to life and possibilities to think, maybe, maybe I have come and gone. Or maybe this being, this consciousness has been re- re- reborn. Um, I can say more about that. But anyways, question. Bob. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Stan Groff. Yes. Yeah. Holotropic breath yes. work. Yes. I did a workshop with him, well, two with him. Uh, he used LSD in the mm-hmm. 50s to treat alcoholism mm-hmm. with some success. And then he moved that into past life regressive work uh, using LSD. Nowadays, well, the workshops I was in, we didn't use LSD. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some on me. <laughs> uh, we just had a partner who monitored our breathing, abdominal breathing, and to very loud uh, surround sound music. And images would come up, mandalas developed. And I had two different experiences of past lives working with him. They were pretty profound. They're very clear in my mind right now. He's, he's, he's done some very interesting work, and, and he re- reports <clears throat> some of um, the, the, the documented, some of the documented recalls. Uh, um, I, I remember in, in one of his books, he talks about a woman who started to have these dreams 
uh, that he was in a well and he was being tortured and he was left there to die and um, and then he was speaking in a language she was speaking in a language that was not understandable anyway um, um, making a long story short she, I think she starts the, the, she re, starts to record the language and it turns out it's actually language that um, uh, at the time I, I'm missing the historical details but there uh, at the time maybe it was Basques but there there were there was a village and actually people were drowned in a well and there was a and this language when it was recorded there was a historian uh, who knew dead languages and could actually recognize that that's the language she was recalling and speaking in her dreams and screaming in her dreams so so some really interesting things that not are not really easily explainable um who knows maybe the last thing we'll say on the topic is um I love the, these practices so much I was willing to become a monk. And really the monk was an avenue for me just to practice for the rest of my life. But I, being a scientist and raised in a scientific household, I really didn't want to take on beliefs. It was a strong personal um, value that I not just take on strange beliefs, but I really tested them. And... Um, I went over and I lived in Burma. It's the nice thing about living outside your culture is that your beliefs are not constantly reinforced by every conversation you have unconsciously. And so every conversation I was having in Burma, things would come up like, like, oh, you must be returning to Burma. You you feel so comfortable here. It's like, no, it's my first time. They're like, oh no, we meant in your past life, maybe this is a place you practiced before. You just get that a lot. So I'm like, uh, mm, yeah. <laughs> thank you, but let's not do a lot more of this because it's not. It makes me uncomfortable. So I would kind of find my way out of these sort these conversations. And then I just started feeling this sort of like the ground crumbling below me. It's like, oh wait a second, I'm the only one who's holding on to the truth that there can't be past lives because I know. How do I know? Where did that come from? Well, we all just know that, right? When was that ever proven? If I'm a real scientist, what was the experiment that's definitively <laughs> proven? There's no past life. It's, well, well, you have evolution and you have conception and the baby comes out. There's no past lives. It's just evolution. Like, yeah, but did you really prove that? And it's like, wow, I didn't prove that. That was a cultural opinion I was comfortable with. And from that opinion... I began interpreting things, and that obviously doesn't work. I was like, oh, I'm the only one in the monastery who's really like sure this doesn't work. And other people who are a lot happier <laughs> are sure that it does work. And it's like, and then in the asking, like, well, do I have to believe in it? And it's more like uh, Nikki said, we're softening this clench onto a view that makes, gives me a lot of comfort because it means I'm closer to being right. It's just like, oh, I'm, I have a view, I have a cultural view that there's only one life. I have a cultural view, but now that I'm in this, in this other culture, I can see it's just a view, it's not a truth. There's a moon, sure, there's a moon, we all kind of, every culture can look at a moon, but past lives, that's a cultural belief that we've not done any type of scientific 
we have not excluded it. We just go, wow, that's weird. But it's just a cultural thing that we say, wow, that's weird. So then the deeper scientist in me said, if you haven't done the experiment, you can't claim any type of knowledge about the ex- about this. And then I practiced with people who had done the experiment and anybody who had done the experiment found past lives. There was nobody who did the experiment who didn't find no past lives. So the scientist in me that doesn't like to leap to conclusions either says, okay, there's this thing that happens. It's accessible. It's part of the human, it's a small part, but it's a very persistent part of the human experience that people have a past life recall. Let's just leave it at that. We don't have to make it fundamentally true. We don't have to make it fundamentally false. Let's just recognize that it's common enough that people are having this experience. Supposedly that they've shown that when uh, the brain is deprived of oxygen, this white light arises. And so scientists will say, we have figured out what the white light at the end of the tunnel, it's just the brain losing oxygen. It's like, well, you haven't figured out anything. All you've done is say you can produce a white light when the brain's deprived of oxygen, but you're not saying anything about whether you're, something else is happening. You've just found a phenomenon that's common. When human brains get oxygen depleted, a white light appears. Scientists who like their point of view will use that to debunk or to throw away something. But really, what did you discover? Just that when oxygen is deprived from the brain, a white light experiences, but that could be Probably other people are like, of course a white light appears. You deprive the brain of oxygen, and then this door opens and it's full of white light. So there is a phenomena, but which way do you want to interpret it? That starts to be opinion, but there is something that won't go away about mm-hmm. past lives. And if you're dismissing it because it just sounds like um, superstition, you probably haven't done actual research. It's probably just cultural opinion. And that's what I realized when I was there, is I just had very strong cultural opinion, but I had not done any real research on it, but my opinion was really clear. And that just began to soften, so that now I, I don't know. People I deeply respect fall on both sides of that question. So it's in the don't know category I'll for add, me. I'll add one last thing experientially. Um, besides looking up, if you're curious, the work of Ian Stevenson, and he's written lots of books on it, easily accessible. Um, there's also, um, this is, listen to this experientially. So um, Dhamma, Dhamma Ruan, and his name is uh, Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, Ruan, R-U-W-A-N. So he, um, he's, a, he's a Dharma teacher now, but when he was at the age two or three years old, he was, he was born in Sri Lanka. He starts to chant these chants, um, long, long scriptures in the old style, not in the local style of, of Sri Lankan chanting, but in the old style of, of, um, um, of Pali at the time of the Buddha, uh, chanting in that style. And... and and actually, so his dad started to record. So, so, and these recordings are available on the web if you search for him. And they're haunting. You hear the sound of this, this child 
um, it's, it's the sound of a ch- it's the voice of a three-year-old child, but, but with such intensity and devotion, it just, it doesn't sound like a child. It's, it's so interesting, and it doesn't sound like the chanting that we're used to hearing. And so his, his memory was that he was a, um, he was a scripture, he was one of the monks at the time of, um, I think the Buddha, or maybe it was the, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Buddha, Buddha Gosa, who put uh, Visuddhimagga together. So, in in that time frame, in that you know, uh, few hundred years time frame, um, and and his his task, his his job as a monk was to to memorize the scriptures. He was a scripture memorizer monk. So, um, again, for whatever it's worth, it's just if you're curious, listen to it. It's 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 haunting. It's otherworldly to listen to this child with. The maturity of an adult hunt, uh, chanting. It's interesting. Anyway, don't know. Don't know. Don't know mind. One more last thing. <laughs> <laughs> One more last thing. Is that you don't have to really struggle with this question. Is that so much liberation comes from working with these teachings interpreted very immediately, very here and now. And when when I've done that, it makes them very useful. So you don't have to kind of now struggle with a question that wasn't bothering you before. Um, and people I know that are very, very free because of these teachings don't have a hard belief about previous lives. Last comment. <laughs> well, just a, a point of curiosity. You, you said you began that statement by saying that you had decided, you had thought about becoming a monk. And are you saying that to become a monk, you have to accept this? No, but it's an odd thing to go over to Burma to fully ordain and still have huge reservations about huge parts of the teachings. So I was in, it was not a Western monastery where they're like, oh, sure. Like, it was just the belief there is so unquestioned. Mm -hmm. And so the view is unquestioned. And they're willing to tolerate people not believing it. But I was submerged into something. And the whole, like, bowing to a Buddhist statue, the physicist in me was like, I don't feel comfortable doing this. But it feels awkward not to do it, so I'll do it. And over the course of a year, I developed a way of doing it that felt authentic to me. But there are parts of the practice that were very, they just didn't, they're like a tight shoe. They didn't fit my personality very well. And this was one of them. Uh, this, is 10 <laughs> <laughs> this is all nice discussion, but what about future lives? <laughs> I mean, well, I, we don't need to talk much about them other than the aging process yeah. turns me more toward a future well, life. Well, again, it's two ways of holding these teachings. There's the cultural one that many of us are more familiar with, which is really we become better at this life through these teachings. And so there's a whole, like, how do I suffer less and how do I live this particular life with less suffering? It's very immediate. But there's a, there's a another way of seeing these things and that, um, it's a kind of a haunting question out of this tradition. Do you really want another life? And if you do, have you really looked at what that's 
what that entails. So sometimes I really want another life, like I fantasize about winning the lottery. That's like, oh, I really want a life that'd be great, and I would do t- high school totally different, and and I, I would do it like this, I would do it like that. I was like, okay, that's fantasy, but a new life, you would cry like a baby, you would laugh like a baby, you would stub your knee, you would your parents would fight, you'd be scared. It's like whatever you experience in this life, you probably experience again. So. I can't do this life over with the wisdom I have now. I'd probably be starting from scratch. Do I want to start from scratch and repeat everything like I have so far? Like, yeah, the jury's out on that one, whether I would do... I like where I am now, so I would probably do it again. But I can't be sure it would turn out like it has. And it can go any which direction. So within this tradition, classically... When you know what really what you're gambling every time you take birth of the pleasures and the pains that are possible, do you want more or do you want to get off this wheel? And when the Buddha looked over 10,000 lives, he didn't say, yep, sign me up for another 10,000. This is quite a ride. He's like, I actually want to get off this. We have to have that in the room because it's part of our tradition and to get that one under the rug there'd be this huge thing under the rug that a lot of these teachings are aimed at how do you not get born again and that starts to be troubling because these teachings are not about just feeling good in this life saying taking birth is a great risk for a lot of pain and temporary pleasures there's a deeper pleasure and it's about not taking birth that's a part of the tradition. But it's not a, maybe for some people in the room that's part of your motivation for really on it, but most people just wanna do this life a little better and kind of be a little more honest and feeling about this life. And that's, that's fine motivation. But then you go into the actual teachings and you're like, wow, they're really talking about not taking birth again a lot. Like that's a really important thing. So. We have some psychological interpretations about that, about not taking another egoic birth and like understanding that. And that helps us culturally. But fundamentally, at the time of the Buddha and the way the Buddha saw things, it really was about dying and then taking birth again and again and again. And when you see 100,000 examples of that, another one is not what you want. You actually would like to conclude this process. Would you be uh, aware if you had another life? And you're talking about choice. You have to talk into the mic oh, for yeah. the recording. <laughs> would, uh, would I be aware of the next life? Or you're saying, do you want to take the next life? Uh, well, that's the... Um, if you believe in this, this whole big picture and how it really works, if you're born human and lower you don't have any memory of your previous lives. If you're born higher than human, you have good access to memory of the past life. Mm. Just interesting facets of the cosmology. Mm-hmm. But if you get born as a human, there's a pretty deep reboot from zero. <laughs> you have all the karmic momentum, but no guiding wisdom around it. 
Do I have choices about being a Red Sox fan again? <laughs> you, that a, oh, here's the one. You could be reborn a Yankees fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought Get about that. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I, that would be, I, I'd go back. I'd, I'd turn around and go back to the, the previous life. Good luck. Let's uh, treat our bodies with some kindness. Yeah. Let's take a good 15-minute break in silence. Thank you. This one, born free, that's free.